0: Welcome to Corrosion Chronicles, an original podcast series produced by the Materials Technology Institute. I'm Heather Elaine, the Executive Director of MTI, and I'm here with my co-host, Mark Cook, who's a materials specialist with the Dow Chemical Company. Hey, Mark. How are you doing today?
1: Hey, Heather. Great. How are you?
0: Well, I'm good. I actually wonder if you were doing great because I've been seeing on Strava your times are getting slower and slower running, so everything okay?
1: Oh, man. Hey, uh, any listeners out there know how to block somebody on Strava? Uh, Let me know.
0: Is this why you didn't show up for our 5K run?
1: That's exactly why I don't want to be embarrassed. Yes.
0: So, so our guest here today is Kevin ganshaw We're really happy to have Kevin with us. Kevin attended University of California at Davis and graduated with a BS in Mechanical Engineering with an emphasis in Materials Engineering and Heat Transfer. And he worked with Chevron for 34 years. For the last four years of Kevin's career, he was in Kazakhstan. And he retired in 2022 and then started with MTI shortly after, and he's now an associate director with MTI. So really happy to have him with MTI and also as a guest on our podcast today to talk about carbon steel. Welcome, Kevin.
2: Great. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really looking forward to talking about
1: carbon steel today and hope it'll be interesting to those that are listening. So just kind of maybe a fun one here is I've heard several times, is there a difference between carbon steel and steel? You know, first off, which do you say? Do you say carbon steel all the time or do you just say steel? And which do you feel is technically correct? Should you be saying carbon steel if it's high carbon steel or, I don't know, just get your thoughts on that. I have a tendency to stick to just
2: carbon steel. And when I say carbon steel, I typically am referring to the type that we generally use when I was in refining, which is low carbon steel. Generally the low carbon having 0.3% or so or less carbon steel and when i want to talk about other carbon steels i typically refer to them as like tool steels or refer to them as you know low chrome steels i would say that i i'm more specific in regards to when i'm talking about uh, these materials because they are different in their application so i i have a tendency to, to differentiate them by using you know different terminology for them
1: yeah yeah but i mean to be, to clarify for everybody like all steels are carbon steels. That's
2: correct. I mean, yeah. exactly. Stainless steel is a steel of sorts, but it's highly alloyed. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. It's, it's, but it's stainless steel. And so if we want to make it clear what we're talking about, we would call it stainless steel versus we just call it steel. So, um, you know, I that's why I'm like, I think if we're going to talk about carbon steel, we're really going to just talk about additions mainly of carbon and manganese and silica. And that's it.
1: Yeah, at that point, if ad- it's anything that's that's iron-based, is is steel, right? So, yeah, Okay, okay, good. Thank
0: you. And that- I just think it's interesting that you know if all the materials of construction that we're going to discuss in this season of this podcast, carbon steel is the one that, in a sense, doesn't need an introduction. Like there is nobody out there in the world that doesn't have already an understanding to some level of what steel is. They all know what steel is, and yet when you get into the real details of all of the metallurgy and the alloying and heat treatments and the way it can be processed. There's actually, it's so complex, right? But everybody thinks they kind of already know stuff. And now we have like a Netflix series on heat treatment. And so people think they just can, you know, even, even welding, you know, people, people have, a lot of people have done some amount of welding, but then they may or may not understand what's really happening on the metallurgy.
2: And I I was, I've been thinking, I'm like, well, as I've been preparing for this, I think a little bit about, you know, carbon steel is just the vanilla of steels. It's the, uh, if you you look at ice creams, uh, I'm, you know, there may not be a lot of people that say it's their favorite, uh, that vanilla is their favorite, but it's the one greatest volume of ice cream that's produced is vanilla ice cream. And that's because it's so variable. And uh, we all kind of get used to it. And, uh, you know, and we even use that term, you know, that somebody's fonts or personality is vanilla because it's just plain. <laughs> so, uh-huh. you know, so it, it's, it, and that's what it is about carbon steel. It's so yeah. common in our in our world and in the industry that it's oftentimes taken for granted and overlooked somewhat. So.
0: And it's And it's the basis, you know, so just like cookies and cream and Rocky Road are mix-ins added to the plain vanilla, you know, the same is true for metallurgy. Stainless steels, you could think of as a basic carbon steel with a little more nickel and chromium added that gives it better corrosion resistance for certain applications.
1: As much as I want to keep talking about ice cream, I'm going to go back to the steel here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Kevin, uh, Sometimes you see pipe and pipe fittings show up and they've got, uh, you know, black uh, mill oxide coating on it. And, and, you know, the folks getting confused about that, thinking they've got a cast iron pipe, when in reality it's just that oxide coating on there. Is that uh, any advice on differentiating or understanding what's going on there?
2: I mean, my personal opinion is never take for granted what something looks like in regards to uh, materials. And uh, whether it has an oxide coating or not, you know, I've I've been fooled out in the field by stuff that's been in service for many, many years. And uh, you cannot tell really what something is, carbon steel or low chrome, and even even sometimes stainless steel, depending on how it's been abused over the years. Um, You know, it just doesn't look right. I mean, my first thing I look at is what stencil on the pipe, if it's available and if it's still there. Is there something stenciled on the pipe that tells me that uh, what the material is? After that, you know, there's always the, uh, I'll call it the poor man's PMI or positive material identification. There's a magnet. So, you know, I, I usually carried in, you know, my my nerd pocket, you know, and my in my chest pocket, you know, I'd carry a, a, a box, a, 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 you know, basically a magnet and I would, you know, touch it to the material and I was like, okay, it's magnetic. Okay, now I've narrowed the field of what this possibly could be. Uh, you know, whether I use records or whether I use a Texas nuclear device or some other uh, Niton device or something like that to be able to determine what the content of the material is, um, you really don't know what you're dealing with. And believe me, I've seen stuff where uh, it stenciled one thing and it was actually something else. Yes. That has. <laughs> so-, yes. so-, yes. so, something. So, so so what happens in the middle, you know, always doesn't uh, uh, doesn't correctly reflect what you actually
1: have. Yeah. So I just want to thank you for coining the term Nerd Pocket. Um, should I credit you for that when I use it in the future, or is there did you get it from somebody else? No, I just
2: figured, you know, there I started in the industry early enough that where we still use pencils and pens and you know, and there were engineers walking around with pocket protectors. Oh, well, we still have Nerd Pockets to so, no no, I, I, I have to admit that I never, you know, I never put on a, a pocket protector ever, but it's, uh, <laughs> I never got that desperate.
0: So, Kevin, there's a fun infographic online showing various amounts of metals that are mined, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. But the bottom line is that iron ore is 93.5% of the total. So, for the most part, it mostly seems like steel is used because it's low cost. I mean, like you said, it's the vanilla, and it's also the major major metal mined out there. But let me ask it another way. If steel was expensive relative to other alloys, are there any applications where you would choose to use steel where it's preferable?
2: Yeah. I mean, I hate to say, you know, a lot of the time when you go from carbon steel to stainless steel, people say, well, that's an upgrade. Well, it's an upgrade in price. That's for sure. But sometimes you're trading off other, you know, other things when you go with stainless steel you are gaining um, a lot of damage mechanisms that you don't have with carbon steel. So you know a, a key example, a key Achilles' heel to stainless steel is chlorides, and uh, and carbon steel, you know it 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 doesn't stand up that well to chlorides, like chloride pitting and and uh, and whatnot. But uh, it doesn't stress corrosion crack like stainless steel. So in my opinion, is that carbon steel is you know, extremely valuable to us. And if it was more expensive, I have a tendency to think that we would still turn to it, you know, and that we would uh, continue to use carbon steel because it adds value. You know, you think about carbon steel and the stress corrosion cracking mechanisms that it sees, but, you know, the, the key ones that I've been exposed to where carbon steel stress corrosion cracked is basically caustic stress corrosion cracking and um, uh, a mean stress corrosion cracking, and that just happens to go with what I deal with, you know, in the refining industry. But, you know, those are the two stress, key stress corrosion cracking mechanisms that come to the top of my mind for carbon steel. But where stainless steel, you know, um, I've seen way more stress corrosion cracking events associated with uh, stainless steel than I have with carbon steel. So I, in my opinion, the, the carbon steel is 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 a huge value to us. It's, it, it is strength material low cost um it performs really really well and you know it, in my view from uh, as a coming from refining industry it's our first thought can we do that in carbon steel that's the first thought we have
0: yep so as long as you're talking about some failures let's just kind of go through what the major um, types of failures are for carbon steel um you know you said you only have seen stress cracking in a couple of Specific environments. But, you know, cr- when you think about corrosion, pitting, fatigue, overpressurization, what would you say are the major failure modes for carbon steel or the most common?
2: My, my most common is corrosion. Okay. And uh, in the case of carbon steel piping that we deal with, like in the refining industry, we see corrosion both internally and externally. So you got corrosion coming from both sides. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, one of the nice things about carbon steel is that you know if 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 it's corroding, more than likely there's water involved somewhere, okay. And the water if is the you know key Achilles' heel to carbon steel in regards to its corrosion. And so if you know you, if I'm processing a, a dehydrated uh, process stream, what's basically 100% hydrocarbon, it's pretty much non-corrosive in my view, um, except if unless it's at high temperatures but at a low temperature, it's non-corrosive, but there's no water present. So I would say the key weakness is that it's it's subject to corrosion mainly, um, and that being, you know, aqueous type corrosion. There are other corrosion mechanisms for carbon steel, like, you know, that water is not involved, like uh, sulfidation.
1: So. It's interesting to hear you say that because, you know, you're in oil and gas, I'm in chemical processing industry, and I feel like we see more overstress and fatigue type failures than we do corrosion, you know what I mean? And and we've probably got a more corrosive process, but uh, yeah, we, I don't know, tend to see a lot of like fatigue, you know, like branch connections that were done 40 years ago when when the standards weren't quite what they are now and and stuff like that, so.
2: Yeah, I mean, the nice thing about carbon steel is that it does have, uh, you know, it does have fatigue, but it can be fatigue damaged and whatnot, but it also has an endurance limit, which is... Something that uh, makes it work really well in the auto industry where it's, you know, constantly fatigued, but they can design in in such a way that they can keep it from failing from fatigue. So by, you know, by basically
1: letting it be only loaded below its endurance limit. So I want to ask you about a a, kind of a pet peeve of mine, I guess, you know, working in some older plants. You know, steel sometimes is used where you know you've got a corrosion rate you determine it's an acceptable corrosion rate and so you pick a design life and you have you know enough extra thickness that that it'll last that design life before it corrodes to a point where you need to replace it and uh, so one I'm curious about what you know what would you consider a typical design life for steel that you've seen but also just how do plants forget that they do that because it's amazing how many times I you know I'm dealing with a plant that's 30 or 40 years old and the the piping or vessel has hit its design life limit, and the plant's just so disappointed, and we got to find a new material. And I'm like, we we made this decision intentionally, guys. This was the plan. Last 30 years. I know. I it's just but it the memory's so short. You know, I guess it's a different group of actors by the time it's 30 years later. But uh, I don't know. I'd just like to hear your thoughts on that because I feel like I run into that a lot.
2: Well, I I think that's fairly common with people, you know, especially when you're dealing with managers that are in the job for, you know, maybe in their position for, you know, two to five years in a certain assignment, and then it it leaks or fails on them, and they want a knee-jerk reaction of, hey, you know, I don't want this to happen again. And and so they, you know, want you to consider allowing up, even though it lasted 30-plus years and was satisfactory. But in regards to design life, you know, You know, it it varies in regards to what you're talking about. If you're talking about a, uh, a, you know, a piece of uh, of carbon steel piping, you know, when when the people are doing the design work and trying to determine the corrosion allowance for that carbon steel piece of pipe, you know, it may be just 10 years or 15 years at the at the most for a piece of carbon steel pipe because it's fairly inexpensive to be able to. You know, replace it versus the alloying up cost is somewhat significant in regards to alloying up. And then, in some cases, if you alloy from carbon steel to a low chrome, like one and a quarter chrome, you also are buying yourself a post-weld heat treatment of that fabrication. So it becomes a lot more expensive. So, if I could just stick with carbon steel and leave it in the as-welded condition, that might be satisfactory to me. The other, you know, op is that, you know, a design life is a lot different for a pressure vessel. Than it is for a piece of pipe, so you want that pressure vessel to last longer. So typically, design life is twenty plus years or something like that. I had one vessel that uh, had uh, corroded through, or was getting corroded through fairly quickly, um, and it was nominally last, I think it was three to five years or so. And um, they were like, "Hey, we should upgrade this vessel." And you know, what what do we do? And I told them, I said we should keep it the same uh, material, but increase the corrosion allowance and let it just basically corrode longer before we replace it because I think that makes more economic sense. And we, we knew the, the plant wasn't going to be around that much longer. So we said that just add more corrosion allowance and deal with it through additional corrosion allowance. And we will, you know, the cost is making the vessel, making the vessel slightly thicker, is a slightly increased cost, but it's but it's a lot cheaper than, you know, buying a replacement vessel three years. Yeah, line, we're you know. doing installation and all that stuff. Exactly. So, so you know, letting things corrode, managing the corrosion of carbon steel is a key thing to think through when you're trying to, um, you know, choose a material. And um, allowing corrosion to happen is okay, as long as it's properly managed.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Right. And that's, that's one of the advantages of carbon steel is it often does corrode evenly, and you can monitor that, you know, from the outside of the equipment. There's a lot of tools that work on carbon steel. And you can, you know, the the failure mechanisms are known and understood.
1: Yeah, you, know, I, and, you said for predictability,
0: exactly. And and sometimes they 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 pit. You know, if you're
2: dealing with chloride pitting, mm-hmm. um, it can be fairly aggressive. But sometimes, uh, depending on the process service, a leak is not good, but it's not the end of the world. And particularly if it's water service, you know, service? The, the, the consequence of failure is somebody gets wet. You know, so versus, you know, it's a fire or something like that. You know, you you take these all these things into consideration in regards to what's the consequence of failure? Can I tolerate this? Can I not? Is it a small leak? Is it a large leak? Is it a toxic leak? Is it, you know, super hazardous? All these things, you know, come into a decision. But generally, our desire is to start at the carbon steel level and then decide whether that's just not acceptable. And then we move up to another alloy, which is more expensive. And that's, that's how we kind of handled it from the refining industry.
1: So I've got another question. I, as you know, I tend to focus on non-metals. So sometimes I actually get jealous of the metals guys, cause you guys have all of this standardization and specification for metals that a lot of times we don't have in the nonmetals world. You know, I can pull up an ASTM and get composition ranges and heat treatment and all that stuff. And I don't always get that with plastics or elastomers. Um, even the control over the fabrication process, you know, you've got very stringent weld procedures and all that. Um, so all that being said, are there still some things that are kind of uncontrolled in the process of manufacturing steel equipment? Like where where do things most commonly go off the rails?
2: Yeah, I mean, carbon steel has uh, ranges. You know, if you look at the ASTM specifications for, you know, A516 grade 70, which is a common plate steel that pressure vessels are made out of, Um, You know, and A106 grade B pipe, common carbon steel piping. um, There are ranges in which, you know, that are allowed in regards to what the composition is. And some things are not controlled. There's no limits on those. And so... Um, You know, vanadium is something that we're beginning to see in, particularly with recycled steels, we're recycling steels and vanadium is is in the recycled steels and it's, you know, cheaper, obviously, not to try to eliminate that vanadium and, you know, as you're recycling the steel and, but vanadium, the presence of vanadium in carbon steel significantly influences its material properties. And, um, and that's a problem that we've been dealing with in the industry is, you know, these, I will call, uncontrolled contaminants that uh, have an influence. Uh, another one is a HF, a service, hydrofluoric acid services, uh, where carbon steel can work decently. However, um, we have found out that if you have a high amount of residual elements, which are contaminants, in that, in that steel then it corrodes faster, a lot faster. And so if you control the contaminants down to a lower level, you can get a much better life in hydrofluoric acid service with carbon steel. So these are little subtleties that we have, I will say, stumbled upon in recent years that uh, have influenced our decisions in regards to how we apply uh, carbon steel. So there are issues with Carbon steel, in regards to its fabrication, that we have to be attentive to.
1: Yeah, I want to. So uh, I've heard the term. Maybe it's not politically correct. Maybe we need to edit the sound of the podcast. But "tramp elements." I've heard that that term. That's the same as what you're saying, right? Uncontrolled contaminants. Yeah. Okay. That's
2: correct. That's correct. And it, and it's some of it's a result of the recycling. Some of it is that there are lots of different manufacturers of carbon steel across the world, and they're different qualities of fabrication of, of manufacturing carbon steel and some are better at it than others and you know I know I have my preferences for who I like to make my carbon steel and uh, because of some experiences I've had with some of these you know trace elements or tramp elements that have been in there that uh, uh, have me concerned about what I'm getting.
0: And you're saying that control of these trap elements requires even tighter specifications than what's in the specifications. So just calling out an ASTM spec isn't adequate.
2: That's correct. Yes, we, we've done this in, in the industry from the refining industry for uh, H2S, wet H2S services where there's hydrogen sulfide and it's wet. And we found out that, you know, if we just stick with this common carbon steel, we typically end up getting enough contaminants in there that uh, in these uh, wet H2S services that the steel doesn't uh, behave as well and as nicely as we want and it you know and if we if we get a little cleaner steel so we'll we'll, we'll make a specification requirement that we want A516 grade 70 but we want you to control some of you know lower sulfur lower phosphorus you know and uh, we try to control those a little extra uh, the problem with that is that now you're talking about like a special mill run of steel and you need to have enough volume for that so to make a special miller so the costs go up and you know and maybe these people don't have that kind of steel you're looking for sitting on the shelf and then some manufacturers specialize in producing cleaner steel so then you know that okay well if i specify this i'm more than likely going to these guys who are you know better at manufacturing carbon steel cleaner carbon steel than i need for this service
0: so, Kevin, there's also been um, a couple of really interesting stories that have hit the news over the last five years. Carbon steel suppliers that were actually doctoring test certificates, uh, Sharpie impact tests in particular, for one of them. Um, and some of the some of the ASTM not meeting specs, and they knew it. And some of that steel ended up in really critical applications. You know, perhaps, you know, U.S. submarines, nuclear power plants, you know, things, things where it matters, places where it matters. So, I guess that brings me to the question, because now you're talking about specifying even tighter specifications than, this, than the standards allow, and basically we're saying some steels don't even meet standards. So, I guess, first question, how much do end users retest or validate when the steels reach the class?
1: That's a good
2: question. Um, in the case of um, my experience, that's a, what I can, can speak from, is that... Typically, we just want to review the mill cert certificates and make sure they all look in order. And part of it is, you know, knowing the companies that they're coming from. um, It it helps. Um, In the case of my prior employer, um, we audited some facilities that, uh, that fabricated, and we would say that we only really wanted, you know, critical materials from audited facilities that uh, had uh, audited these. So, you know, it doesn't require us to do retesting. However, there has been industry issues like with forging, forged carbon steel that had low temperature toughness problems. That required a lot of additional testing. So, you, you, uh, in fact, there were some that were buying, um, you buy, you want to buy a flange that had a particularly low temperature application, and you'd buy two of the flanges, one to destructively test and the other one to actually use in the application. And, that, and that's really, really expensive. You're buying double, you double the material in this particular case for flanges because we were particularly concerned about the forgings that that's really the lab test. Right. for those the lab test plus the double of the flange. Yep. And then you got to have, you got to have, you know, internal systems for checking that data before the item is delivered or actually used. And then if it doesn't pass and you've already received the one flange and the other one tested and it didn't pass, you have to quarantine it so it doesn't get picked up by um, somebody else for a job or a project. So, you know, all, all of these things kind of, you know, are, Issues and concerns. And yes, retesting is done in certain applications, but you try to avoid it by paying attention to the mill certs. But the mill certs can be forged. It's good to look at heat numbers. I mean, th- these guys who forge things are, you know, there's like, there's criminals and there's smart criminals. Okay. And so, <laughs> and so, and some of these guys aren't that smart in regards to how they do things. And they, you know, it doesn't take much to looking at heat numbers and realizing, yeah, I got mill certs, but the heat numbers don't match up and it's not uncommon for you to get materials that have been brought through i will say uh, an importer and the importer puts together their own mill certs and you have to ask the importer i want the mill certs not your mill certs i want the mill certs that you were sent with that, that material the original, right. or the original one and then you find out that the numbers don't line up and they're it's you know very very difficult
0: so i want to clarify that this is the exception not the rule i'm not I'm trying to imply that all steel makers are going around doing this but in this one case The metallurgist was quoted saying that they did it because they thought the test was super stupid, was the word they used, and just not that important. Can you kind of circle back and just talk about, you know, why is a Sharpie impact test significant? Why does it really matter? And like, what kinds of applications would that really matter for?
2: Okay. So Sharpies are really important for, particularly for low temperature applications and for where you have very thick materials, particularly carbon steel, because the properties of carbon steel as it gets thicker are not universal through the thickness of the steel. So in the middle will be different than on the outside. And so that's particularly true for, uh, you know, really thick carbon steel, like six-inch thick carbon steel. And so a Sharpie impact toughness test can give you an indication of how that material is going to behave. And particularly, as I mentioned, low temperature applications are important because brittle fracture is a bad deal. And because particularly in our type of industry, in oil and gas industry, a brittle fracture means a significant lo- loss of containment and a huge loss of, you know, hydrocarbon potentially to the atmosphere, which may ignite and cause fire, explosion, et cetera. So, you know, very, very careful uh, about being wary of this. I mean, the case in point was, you know, we originally figured out about impact health problems because of Liberty ships in World War II. And a Liberty ship breaking in half in cold ocean waters, it's a bad deal to be on that ship. This <laughs> is <it's> a, <laughs> a major problem. And typically when you're talking about, uh, you know, a failure due to brittle fracture, it's catastrophic in regards to the material. You just can't really fix it. And, you know, what, whatever it was holding, is it's not holding up. It, whether it's a bridge or a pressure vessel or a ship.
0: Right. Absolutely.
1: So, Kevin, have you watched Forged in Fire on TV?
2: That's the one the, the, where they're making like swords George and stuff, stuff. Yeah. Like I, I've watched only parts of it. So I've never, I I've never be, really watched it that much. Though.
1: I could see that driving somebody like you crazy. You probably get a huge headache if you watch the whole thing. They, they, there's a huge emphasis on heat treating their knives and their swords, swords on the show. And they don't really talk about what's going on or why it improves the properties of the blade. But I think a lot of us have come away with the impression that if we heat our pressure equipment up to a glowing hot red and then cool it back down, it's going to, Improve the property somehow. Is that is that true? Like all things, it
2: it <laughs> depends. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, one of the most common heat treatments that we run into um, with uh, carbon steel is actually post weld heat treatment, which is where you heat the steel up to eleven to twelve hundred degrees Fahrenheit, and you basically are relieving the stresses or doing a stress relief of the material at that at that temperature, and the material does go. Red hot, it it does glow at eleven to twelve hundred degrees Fahrenheit, um, but uh, and that's an important step that we do, and uh, it's important. We do it in certain applications, not all applications of carbon steel. Just in certain applications where it's needed, it provides great value to us. Okay, now in the in the sake of uh, other materials like uh, you know high higher strength um, carbon steels, I will say the higher carbon steels their ability to get their properties of higher strength um, and uh, being able to uh, perform better is because of certain heat treatments they do, particularly quenching type of, where they heat the metal up a lot harder, more above its lower critical temperature, above 1600 degrees Fahrenheit. And then they quench it in water or oil or air, and by doing that type of quenching, they enhance the certain properties but they give up on other properties as well so they they quench it they get you know maybe a higher strength maybe a better ability to hold a hold an edge in regards to a blade okay <laughs> but you also the material becomes maybe a lot more brittle so that would be a bad deal for a guy going into battle with his sword you know that fails in a brittle fashion so typically you know you can quench something but then you may do another heat treatment called a tempering where you raise the temperature not as high as the, as the temperature you took it for quenching, but you basically took it to a lower temperature. And by doing the tempering process, you bring back some of the other better properties you're looking for. Maybe it doesn't become as brittle, but you're giving up a little bit of strength for the tempering, but you're making it less brittle. So, you know, you're exchanging certain properties with certain heat treatments that you're performing. Just like you can change the properties with the the, the chemical elements that you add to it, You can also change the properties with the type of heat treatment that you're doing.
1: I'll let the show producers know you'd be available as a little window up in the corner during the show, maybe to explain with. No, I think I'll I'll stick to podcasts. (laughs)
0: Let's take a quick break for a minute here and just hear our word from our sponsors. The heart of MTI is our ability to meet in person, to network, and to get to know one another at our in person meetings. MTI has three meetings a year in the U.S., two meetings a year in Asia, and two meetings a year in Europe. Those are in-person live events where valuable technical information is shared and our members are able to work together to develop and work on projects. However, during the era of COVID, we all learned that there were some slim benefits to being able to operate virtually. MTI is pleased to announce an MTI virtual global TAC meeting. It'll be September 6th and 7th, from nine to noon Eastern time. Please see the MTI website for more information about the technical content of this meeting and our other upcoming live in-person meetings. But we hope you'll be able to join us September 6th and 7th for MTI's first global virtual TAC meeting. All right, welcome back. We're here with Kevin Ganshaw to talk some more about carbon steels. I'm just curious, uh, we're hearing a lot about additive manufacturing, 3D printing these days. Why do we not hear much about people doing 3D printing with carbon steel?
2: Well, I mean, typically 3D printing is for uh, alloys and materials that you don't want to keep on the shelves, okay? Um, because they're they're expensive to keep in a storehouse. Whereas carbon steel materials are of a low enough cost that you can keep spares, you know, uh, at your storehouse. So, you know, when you maybe buy, a, you know, a, 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 I'm thinking of like a compressor or something like that. You that you keep some of the spares, you know, in your storehouse so that if the compressor comes down, you can quickly respond to it. You're not waiting for parts, etc. cetera. Where I think additive manufacturing really comes into is where you have, you know, you need spare parts potentially that are high-alloyed materials, but you don't really want to keep them on the shelves because they are extremely expensive to procure. So if you could manufacture just in time, that uh, component and and if you only needed a few of them, onesies twosies, type of these things, then additive manufacturing makes total sense and uh, and also it, it simplifies some manufacturing for complex geometries. So right. um, so there's you know there's value there. but I think that really comes down to the commodity prices and what it costs for you to be able to store spares versus manufacturing spares. When I was working in Kazakhstan, This was additive manufacturing, particularly important to us because accessibility to material and replacements was difficult. We kept a lot of spares in our storehouse because we knew we couldn't get things imported very easily. And then when they did get imported, you know, there was all customs and you had to wait for it to get through customs. So it was a very long process. So, you know, additive manufacturing, having an additive manufacturing capability locally there was a game changer that, uh, you know, we really were looking forward to, but you know, it wasn't something I was thinking I needed for carbon steel because I, I figured I could keep the carbon steel spares on the shelf and have those re- readily available.
0: Right. Right. So it all comes down to economics.
1: Like everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh, <and laughs> have
1: one other question. Uh, yeah. I get involved a lot in repairs. Like uh, you know, it's, it's existing equipment. It's been in service. Maybe the coating or lining failed. Maybe we just need to do a weld repair on it. But, you know, you're often dealing with, uh, contamination from the chem, from the process chemistry, like, you know, chloride specifically something I run into a lot or silicone oils, but there's a bunch of different things that could be contaminating the steel. And a lot of times you'll see, like, we'll clean it. We'll, we'll get our, uh, nice, uh, surface finish that we want and, and cleanliness. And then, uh, it blooms really fast, you know, and you see, uh, rust much more quickly than it typically would in the environment. And, and. You hear all kinds of explanations, right? Like, like, oh, the chemistry soaked into the grains or it's in the pores or, you know, can you talk about it? It's it's strictly a surface phenomenon, right? Those chemicals are, are just on the surface and we didn't, we didn't get rid of all the residual contamination with our first cleaning method, or is there more to it than that?
2: It depends. So I agree that there are uh, surface contaminations that can be removed easily. I will say in some cases, chemically, they can be removed whereas other items can't be removed chemically and actually it's almost better to burn them off with higher temperature to kind of burn off those and then clean up the surface the oxide that you get from burning those 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 contaminants off there are other contaminants particularly hydrogen uh, that gets into the steel that you know I don't care how much you clean it and how much you uh, burn it off um the the hydrogen's going to stay in there unless you go through an intentional hydrogen bake out process where you bake out the hydrogen yeah. because that hydrogen when you try to weld it will have an influence on the on the weld in regards to whether it may even crack with something called delayed hydrogen cracking that can occur on steels that are charged with hydrogen so you know as i said it depends what you're trying to do what you're trying to do but there's amazing ability to try different things, to try to improve the ability to do a weld repair on something that's contaminated. I, I am generally of the opinion that if carbon steel is damaged or cracked or whatever, I can always fix it. The key question is, is how long will that repair stay and how long will it last? And that's one question, particularly if it's fatigue damaged, I can still fix it. And put it back in service, but it may not last that long because the, the, the fatigue is kind of, you know, in the metal and, and done. Versus um, something that's, you know, highly highly corroded is just economically cheaper to replace it at that point rather than trying to fix it. So you know those those kinds of trade offs that uh, you have to look at when you're trying to do these repairs and cleanliness and being able to get something clean for repair is is important. And I've used all types of methods including heating to try to burn off, um, you know, contaminants to try to make something so I could get it welded back together.
0: So, you know, you're talking about um, hydrogen in particular and, you know, hydrogen, the smallest molecule is obviously does diffuse into alloys, into steel in particular, and it can cause all sorts of damage. I mean, I've seen hydrogen blisters in carbon steel tanks and sulfuric acid service, Um But then, you know, the other the other issue that you guys deal with in the refinery world war is is HTHA, high temperature hydrogen attack. Um, So can you talk a little bit about that and about it's the relationship between HTHA and stress relieving?
2: Yeah. So, uh, you know, we've seen the the thing about a high temperature hydrogen attack is, you know, I, I will say that our knowledge continues to evolve in regards to our understanding of high temperature hydrogen attack. Do we completely understand the damage mechanism? No, we don't. We are still learning. And uh, you know, one of the recent changes they made in regards to uh, high temperature hydrogen tech is a, a in a document called API 941. It's an API document, and it's, it has to do with high temperature hydrogen attack. And uh, they recently made a change. Uh, recent to me is anything in the last five or ten years, given my age. So anyway, <laughs> um, they uh, have added an additional curve to what is acceptable for the high te- the, the the basically the partial pressure of hydrogen and the temperature that it's exposed to. That if you post weld heat treat it, that you get a benefit out of it in, in regards to its resistance to high temperature hydrogen attack. How do we get that information? Through experience and our experiences and our knowledge, why it happens not so clear on why, but it has to do with more than likely it has to do with residual stresses that are present. And so, if you have residual stresses and this and the material is is charged with hydrogen, um, you have stress, a compromised material. Um, you're more than likely to get a crack. So, by postal heat treating and reducing those stresses, uh, you can minimize the potential of of propagating a crack initially because the stresses are lower. So, um, you know, that's in theory what it is, but the primary method that we have uh, used in API nineteen forty one is experience.
0: Yeah. Well, it's it's one of those nice times when the theory aligns with experience.
2: Right. Sometimes it's easier to see in hindsight than...
0: So once you got all the,
2: once all the data is sitting in front of you, then you can like begin to make conclusions. But uh, without that data, it's somewhat hard to do that.
0: Right. And can you also talk a little bit about castings, like the difference between cast iron, cast steel, carbon steel, you know, ductile iron, like some of those, those other forms of carbon steel and even forgings.
2: Long before we had carbon steel, we had cast iron. Cast iron has been around for centuries, if not uh, millennia in regards to uh, ability. And cast iron is um, actually, you know, had its applications and was useful. There's actually uh, bridges that were manufactured out of cast iron uh, years ago, um, but we wouldn't do that again now because uh, cast iron just has some properties that are not very good relative to what you can get with uh, with steel. And cast steel is very important, you know, like for pump cases and compressors um, having a, a cast steel case allows you to manufacture something that's of a complex geometry, uh, however you want. The behavior of that that pump or compressor is influenced by the material that you choose. So if we chose cast iron, the difficulty with cast iron is that it's very difficult to repair it. Um, even though it maybe it's the co- you can accept the compromised properties that cast iron has in regards to its possibly being brittle, et cetera. But if it corroded or whatnot, you you'd be it's hard pressed to repair that. It re- requires special procedures, heat treatments, et cetera, to be able to do that versus uh, a, a cast carbon steel uh, is a lot easier to repair. Um, and uh, you may require heat treatments, depends. Um, and it makes it, uh, you know, a little easier. So um, what I try to say is that uh, we've evolved past cast iron. It's Cast iron is generally used in services like, you know, water, et cetera, that's not toxic, et cetera, that works great because consequence, again, of failure is not a big deal. And, um, you know, but if you have something like hydrogen you're trying to compress in a compressor, you know, you need to make sure you have the right alloys there and you want to make sure the thing has long, you know, life and that if you do find any problems that you can do some small repairs in those areas and it not, you know, requiring a significant amount of effort to do that.
0: I mean, there's so many factors. And, you know, bringing it back to where we started, I think many people think that carbon steel is sort of the vanilla of metallurgy, um, but it's just not that simple, you know. And just like we know that there are so many different types of vanillas out there, you know, the the slight differences in alloying elements, in heat treatment processing history, the form it's in, all of these things can have a really significant impact on the application, on its strengths and weaknesses, on its suitability for an application, and on the failure mode.
2: Nicely summed.
0: Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Kevin. It was really great to have you. And I think think you did a great job of taking what seems at first like a simple subject, but is actually quite complex and really kind of laying it out for people and giving us some things to think about. So we really appreciate all of your insights and wisdom into carbon steel today. So thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Mark. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of The Corrosion Chronicles. Join us each month as we continue our conversation with subject matter experts, discussing materials related challenges and successes in the process industries. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. For more information about the Materials Technology Institute, visit us online at mti-global.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.